At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. It's Monday, August 13th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Kishore Hari. Indre will be back next week. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at Inquiring Show, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you could subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Do you remember graphene, that material that was going to solve all of these incredible problems that came on the scene about 15 years ago? It was hyped as this incredible solution because of the amazing properties of this material. It could conduct electricity. It was incredibly lightweight. It was incredibly strong. So graphene was going to be in everything from the sides of ships to uh, electrical power cables to revamping how batteries work. Well, it's been about 15 to 20 years since graphene first came on the scene in terms of media coverage. And it begs the question, where are we now? The Verge did this amazing story about an update to all of the work that has gone into making graphene, both from a manufacturing standpoint and a research standpoint, much more viable in today's economy. And I tracked down one of the people they feature in a video about graphene, Dr. Joseph Meany. Joseph and I actually met at a a recent science conference, and I thought it would be great to get his take on how graphene's history may have been overhyped, but there's been a ton of progress made on the R&D and where we can expect it to go from here. He, along with his co-author Les Johnson, uh, came out with a book last year called Graphene, the super strong, super thin, and super versatile material that will revolutionize the world. Will it revolutionize the world? It's rare for one material to do that. But after my conversation with Joseph today, I I feel a little bit better about where all of this is headed. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Joseph Meany. Today's episode is brought to you by Looker. Use Looker to take your analytics to the next level. Looker is a modern analytics platform bringing data-driven decision-making to every level of business. From innovative startups to enterprise-grade businesses, thousands of companies are using Looker in every department to access, analyze, and act on their data. Looker gives you the right tools for the job, their modern best-of-breed data workflows free up time for higher-value work and has solutions for every department, from customer support and marketing to product and data science. Looker is built with your security in mind and ensures that your data is safe, secure, and in your control. Companies like Deliveroo, Trivago, TransferWise, Yahoo, and many more rely on Looker for their business intelligence needs. Get more from your data with greater efficiency by using Looker. Head to looker.com slash minds today for an exclusive free trial. That's looker.com slash minds to get started today. 
Today's episode was brought to you by Google Play. Did you know that you can now download and listen to audiobooks on Google Play? That's right, with hands-free listening using Google Assistant or Chromecast. You can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte, no subscription necessary. There's even multi-device integration across the Google ecosystem. I love using Google Play. I use it on my phone. I use it on my Google Home, uh, in my living room, and I use Chromecast. So this entire ecosystem works together so I can listen in my car, in my living room, and uh, on the go on transit and have audiobooks pick up right where I left off. It's perfect. And for a limited time, you get $10 off your first one by visiting g.co slash play slash minds. That's g.co slash play slash minds. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. Today's episode is sponsored by Epic Reads and Heretics Anonymous, a hilarious new novel by Katie Henry about a band of misfits who end up inciting a rebellion at their high school. Put an atheist in a strict Catholic school, expect comedy, chaos, and Inquisition. Get to know the charming group of heretics who start off seeking a safe place to embrace their diverse beliefs and end up launching a full-on revolt of their strict Catholic school's rigid code of conduct. This smart, irreverent, and witty tale combines hilarious hijinks with a lot of heart and a little romance, and will have you questioning what it truly means to believe. Perfect for fans of Becky Albertali and Robin Schneider. This is one divine comedy you don't want to miss. Pick up Heretics Anonymous today, available through HarperCollins, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and everywhere else books and audiobooks are sold. That's Heretics Anonymous by Katie Henry. Start reading today. Joseph Meany, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hey, thanks for having me. So graphene is one of those things we've heard about for a little while, but you know, it's one. It's also this mysterious item. So I think we should actually get down to basics and talk about what is graphene exactly. Yeah. So if you have a desk around you and you might be able to pick up a pencil, if you look at the tip of that pencil, you've got kind of a dull, lustrous, a little bit shiny gray material. And that material you commonly know of as graphite. Now, graphite is made up of this pancake-like sheet material that when you put the graphite to a piece of paper and draw a line, what you're actually doing is sliding these different sheets off of one another to make the mark on the paper. And these individual sheets are called graphene. Now, graphite and graphene are made up of carbon atoms attached to one another in these hexagon arrays. So if you imagine a hexagon with all equal sides, you've got uh, six vertices represented by the six carbon atoms in this structure. And now if you start attaching carbon atoms so that they form hexagons outside of this central hexagon and extend that out into infinity along a two-dimensional plane, what you end up with is these carbon atoms attached to one another that just repeat in an infinite array. Um, and every single carbon atom is exactly identical to every other carbon atom within that structure. So if we were, if we were to take like a pencil out of my drawer and just be able to peel off like one layer, we'd have a little thin strip of graphene then. 
That's exactly right. And uh, it's funny you mentioned that because back in 2004, Andrei Grime and Konstantin Novoselov actually did exactly that. They took a piece of graphite, um, although it was not from a pencil, and they took a piece of scotch tape, regular sticky tape, and peeled off a layer of this graphite from their larger hunk. And when they went through a couple of extra chemical steps to remove the sticky tape and put it down onto a surface that they could stick under a very powerful microscope, they were actually able to find these uh, single layers of graphene sheets. Um, so you outlined exactly how the Nobel Prize uh, for 2010 was won. Oh, so you're telling me that I should call them up and ask for my share of the prize now? <laughs> well, we'll put that aside because I don't think anyone's giving me a Nobel Prize. So, But why is graphene such a big deal then if it is just a single layer, a two-dimensional layer of graphite? Like, What are its properties that make it so special? Well, so when these carbon atoms in graphene come together, they share direct bonds between the two atoms that are particularly strong. But then because of the way that the carbon atoms are arranged in this hexagon lattice, there are extra electrons in these clouds that are available for bonding. And they're very loosely bound in these outside clouds. But if you think of doubling up chains on a tow hook, one chain length is weaker than two, which is definitely weaker than three. And so these electron orbitals that are coming together to bond with one another uh, in a way that is stronger than a regular single carbon-carbon bond, you end up with a material that is actually exceptionally strong for its weight. In fact, 200 times stronger than steel by weight. It is extremely lightweight. And because it's a single layer of atoms thick, it's also extremely um, flexible and a good bit elastic. Now, I, I talked about these electrons being loosely bound, and that's also actually really exciting because when you apply a voltage to graphene, it conducts electricity. In fact, it conducts electricity even better than any other metal, several orders of magnitude better than copper or even silver. And so when people are looking to apply graphene to different industries, usually they're honing in on one or two of these exciting properties, but they're using it in such a way that is you know, above and beyond what we can achieve with your typical macroscopic mo uh, materials, whether it be metals or rubbers or plastic, what have you. So it's light, it's really strong, it's elastic, it's flexible, and it conducts electricity. Anything I'm missing? What else can it do? Can it, can it like dispense cash? This is a <laughs> lot of things for, for one single you know, compound to do. Well, if you believe the National Graphene Association, it's definitely going to be able to dispense cash. In fact, a lot of governments around the world are pouring investment into graphene research. There's almost kind of an arms race, if you will, um, with the big players being uh, China, the United States, Great Britain, 
and Japan being the top ones. But I would certainly be remiss to um, not talk about Singapore and India as well. So there's a lot of research coming in and just mentioning graphene in a research title really enhances your uh, ability to get some grant funding. Now, whether that practice is appropriate or not, that can certainly be left up to some more artistic interpretation. But uh, even as such, it's an extremely exciting uh, material to be involved with. And so to sort of illustrate the strength a little bit, um, if you imagine you had a sheet that was big enough to cover a table, for example, and you strapped it down so that it was free floating in air, kind of like a rubber sheet, that one atom thick material would be able to hold up the weight of a soccer ball. And you would notice it deflect a little bit, kind of like a drum skin almost, if you will. So it is somewhat stretchy. And if you remove said soccer ball, it would flex back to its original shape. Um, so it's, it's, it's got a lot of strength for being an almost inconsequential bit of material. So let's, let's rewind the clock a little bit, because you mentioned they, uh, those scientists won the Nobel Prize just in the last decade, uh, but their research dated back you know, uh, well before that. Where, I mean, in the last just like 15, 20 years, where have we come from with graphene and, and, and how is that progressing forward to, to where we are now? Well, graphene research up through, I would say, the middle of the 1990s was actually just achingly slow. Graphene research started in earnest back in the late 1800s. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit if you want. But the first time that people really confidently say that graphene was witnessed as a single layer um, was back in the mid-80s by Hans-Peter Bohem. And through that point, there was no really good way of making graphene. And that was why the graphene field was just so painstakingly slow, was that being able to isolate these single-layer sheets was just expensive, it was time-consuming, um, it was materially complicated, so only really smart, really well-trained people were able to do it. And in fact, it was a co-worker of uh, Novoselov's, he was a graduate student at the time, another graduate student was on the, on the case of trying to find a way to get these single uh, graphene sheets in a way that might have been efficient. And in, in a way, he just basically took a belt sander to it and was just trying to etch away at this really big block and trying to get the smallest piece of graphite that he could. But when somebody else in their group meeting were like, hey, well, we just clean the surfaces by ripping it off with sticky tape. Has anybody looked at the stuff that we throw in the trash? And that's basically what led to um, the discovery that you could just take a piece of sticky tape and isolate these single layers of graphene. And it was from there that people were started to probe the electronic and physical properties 
of graphene in a repeatable and statistically meaningful kind of way. So that's where graphene research really started to take off. I mean, the elbow in the exponent curve just blew up from there. That's kind of hilarious that literally somebody looked in a trash can and was like, hey, what if we just take this stuff we're throwing away um, as as sort of the the genesis of all of this? So what has been done over the last, I don't know, 10 to 15 years to really accelerate? I guess there's a few things that have to accelerate, both like the exploration of the properties of of this material, but also probably the manufacture of the material, because we're not just taking bits of scotch tape to manufacture this in mass. I'm, I'm assuming. <laughs> it's a it's a good assumption to make. And so there are three primary ways of making graphene these days that are uh, the most common. Um, the first being exfoliation. Um, and that breaks down into chemical exfoliation and mechanical exfoliation. Um, and if any of your listeners use skin exfoliants to slough off dead skin and expose fresh young skin underneath. This is exactly the kind of analogy that we're talking about with exfoliation of graphite. So you can literally dig graphite out of the ground. And if you treat it with certain chemicals, the individual flakes of this graphite will slough off and you'll end up ultimately with a heaping pile of graphene-based powder. And likewise, you can do mechanical exfoliation, whether that be by the scotch tape method or even putting it in a solution in a blender. Um, what you're just doing is adding mechanical energy and separating the individual graphite sheets into graphene. Now, that comes along with the caveat that while it's really cheap to do, in fact, uh, exfoliation is the cheapest way to get graphene, you end up with whatever uh, chemical impurities that are also present within that graphite, because you are just mining it out of the ground. And so whatever the um, comes with the coal and graphite deposits that you get, you end up with extra sulfur. So you're not getting the full property that is possible with a pure form of graphene. Exactly, exactly. And so um, the sheet shapes, they're really irregular, but that's when people want to probe graphene in a very exacting way, then they turn to one of the other two methods that are much, much more expensive, but give you much, much better graphene. Um, one is called chemical vapor deposition, and that's where you take a uh, gas that has carbon in it, usually methane or something similar, um, and you deposit it on a metal foil, and through controlling the atmosphere within the chamber and the temperature of the foil and some other variables, you end up with these uh, carbon atoms fitting together in this generally hexagonal lattice, and you get very, very good um, elemental purity of your graphene out of uh, this method. And the third one is called uh, epitaxial gr epitaxially grown graphene. And uh, epitaxy is where you take silicon carbide 
which is a type of material that's used in um, abrasives and a lot of like sandpapers and that sort of stuff. It's very, very tough material. Um, but if you heat it up and you sublime off all the silicon, what you're left with is carbon that spontaneously forms these graphene sheets in sort of uh, little chemical steps. Um, if you look at them under very, very powerful microscopes. Um, again, it gives you very good chemical purity and really good um, purity of the hexagon lattice as well. Um, but again, both of those are far more expensive to do than uh, to exfoliate. So clearly manufacturing is an area that still needs refinement, just both either to bring down the the cost or improve the the quality. So then what can you do with graphene? Because we we were told when graphene first kind of came on the scene that this could revolutionize electronics because of its electrical properties, or we could even see it, you know, inside the hull of ships because it's so strong and lightweight. Uh, where have we seen like sort of the applications of graphene grow in this interim period? Yeah, the applications for graphene have really started to grow out realistically within the past five-ish years. Um, the first decade easy of graphene research focused really, really only on the fundamentals of trying to hammer out the actual properties and figure out what it is that we could do with graphene and if it would be um, economically viable to do anything with it. Um, but 2017 and 2018 have actually started to see um, a lot of exciting development in the applications area, and it's only getting better as newer consumer products are actually starting to hit the market now. So last year, as I was writing the Graphene book, uh, one of the things that we latched onto is we found out that a company is making bike tires with graphene in the rubber. And it's supposed to improve the mechanical properties of these tires in that they're able to grip much better and they, they uh, increase the friction on turns when you apply a sideways force to this rubber, but they reduce the amount of friction between the tire and the road when you're along a straightaway. So it improves your speed when you're building up speed or, or trying to maintain a coast. But if you're on, say, a rocky path or trying to come around a tight turn, it's this extra sideways friction that allows you to make those turns much more tightly. And so bicyclists are going to end up seeing improvements in their Tour de France times as graphene comes into um, these advanced athletic products. And are they just coating the tires or like literally blending in the graphene into the into the rubber itself? It's actually being blended into the rubber itself. And so these uh, graphene uh, included materials, they're called composites. And that's really all that has hit the consumer market at this time are different graphene composites. Um, so some people are starting to make uh, graphene composite textiles for workout clothes that um, 
you know, keep you sweat free because they shed your body heat much more evenly. People are starting to put graphene into into paints and plastics. Conductive paint? Or what would that do? Not conductive paint. Uh, A company... Like reflects heat? Yeah, a company out of Britain is putting the graphene into uh, this paint just because they say that uh, they're able to apply much more thin coatings um, of this paint over a wider area, which means you can buy less paint for the same uh, area of room that you need to cover. And they make a couple of other claims. And, you know, I, you I, sound skeptical. Yeah, I, do, I don't I don't completely buy it. Um, there are some snake oil salesmen out there, as with any emerging technology, you know, if they want to get in touch with me and we set up a demo and we we prove that their stuff works better than the uh, Benjamin Moore that I can pick up from Home Depot, great. I am all about that. But heck, there's even a golfing company that's included graphene into their golf balls that's supposed to help with the elasticity and get you a bit extra distance on your opening drive. All this is cool. Like if I have a golf ball that goes an extra five yards or if I have a a shirt that keeps me a little bit cooler. I mean, the bike thing is actually legitimately cool, but these are nibbling at the edges type of, of consumer applications. You know, the one I always heard about was this is going to revolutionize the solar panel industry because this could replace silicon as a conductive element. And because silicon is not the easiest thing to mine, it could also just change the way that we're interacting uh, with the practices, just the end-to-end practices that go into building a solar panel. Have we seen movement forward in that way? Yeah, it's definitely made strides. And I think what we'll end up seeing is sort of a marriage of the independent research going on within improving solar cells as far as the photon capture efficiency, and then uh, the efficiency of transporting those electrons that have been freed up from absorbing that photon to do useful work. And it's that latter part that graphene is going to really see its own. Graphene's conductivity comes in really importantly in that. I was talking with some folks out of Minnesota not too long ago, and we were trying to come up with a sort of think big project that graphene would really see some interesting transformative uh, developments in. And I sort of threw out there, I said, hey, what if we could replace every mile of electrical transmission cable here in the United States with graphene transmission cables? And you know, if graphene is two or three orders of magnitude better at conducting electricity than copper is, and it can be made in a way that we'll be able to um, just hoist up these new lines that aren't going to be as impactful to traffic patterns, to um, air uh, traffic patterns, those sorts of things. If we're able to move the electricity that we generate by any means, whether it be 
uh, traditional fossil fuels, nuclear or solar, along with the other renewables, hydroelectric, uh, et cetera, if, if we're able to just move those electrons around more efficiently, then that saves a ton of the costs and uh, drops the cost of serving electricity to rural areas dramatically, dramatically. And, you know, this doesn't have to be an all at once rollout to be beneficial. Small networks of grids where um, you'll see the densest benefit first, that will certainly be where the development comes through first. But the true worldwide impact is being able to bring electricity to the areas of United States, of Africa, of the other developing areas um, that don't have to go through setting up, you know, cut down trees to serve as, uh, you know, the poles that just hold up this heavy electrical wire. Yeah, and I think we've we've had experts on talk about you know fifty percent transmission loss across our aging grid network. So I, I can imagine even modest gains, even if they're not 20%, even if it's 10%, will be a, a pretty massive overhaul for that industry. Um, before we get into some other kind of bleeding edge applications, I, I wanted to back up and and just sit and ask, like, it, graphene, like, really when it came on the scene, had a ton of hype and energy around it. And, you know, that's a dangerous thing in the science world because realizing these technologies into applications usually takes much longer than we think because there's market forces there's the research forces at play here and, and graphene's been an example of this can you can you talk a little bit about the hype behind graphene and and whether it's actually living up to the promise that were made years ago uh, versus you know where where we think it's actually going to go in the next you know 5 to 10 years yeah if we'd had this conversation Back in you know 2010 or 2009, um, as you know, rumors were getting started about graphene maybe being eyed to win a Nobel Prize, we would have had exactly the same level of excitement about graphene. We would have said it's going to revolutionize electronics. It's going to be in everybody's cell phone. It's going to be in everybody's computers. It's going to up in the construction industry. So we would have been able to say with the equal level of excitement about the properties and, and possibilities of graphene. So that, that has been well maintained over the past decade or so. Um, and while people tried to make uh, get-rich-quick schemes off of the graphene excitement bubble um, after the Nobel Prize, when all you could really get on the market was exfoliated graphite, whose quality was iffy at best, and people were just trying to make a quick buck before maybe exiting, you would have probably been disenfranchised or uh, disappointed, you know, in another two years or so. I think we've finally reached the point where we're no longer just talk. I think we've finally hit the point actually where we're not only going to see these gee whiz consumer applications coming out, but that 
the ability to manufacture graphene in its various forms on a scale that is relevant to industry really come to fruit and actually bear some change in in making truly impactful developments. And is that the key lever? Is that the key lever? Like as as the cost and quality of manufacturing come, uh, as the cost goes down and the quality of manufacturing goes up, that's when we're going to start to see this integrate more and more. Or or is there still a lot of R and D here? Oh, there's still a lot of R and D, um, and I'll get to an example of that in a second. But the changeover from what you might have found. Uh, six or seven years ago to now is that one is able to uh, cheaply get reliable graphene for a product and that there are enough graphene experts in the world that you can easily find one to vet other people that are trying to sell you products. So if you're approached by a random graphene company and you're a manufacturer of, you know, consumer medical product A, if what you need is actual high quality, pristine graphene, but all you're getting is crappy exfoliated graphite, then your final product won't be able to meet the expectations that you set for your investors or your project manager when you actually set out to incorporate the graphene in the first place. So when people heard 200 times stronger than steel, people immediately imagined taking a large piece of graphite and being unable to rip it, which is actually untrue. Graphene is 200 times stronger than steel by weight. And that is the key definitive factor that gets dropped off of a lot of discussion is that graphene is exceptionally strong, but is also exceptionally light. So that's why I painted the picture for you earlier about being able to support a soccer ball, but you're not going to get much more weight out of it than that. You're not going to drop a 20-pound barbell on a sheet and expect it to hold because we just can't reasonably set those kinds of expectations. But the snake oil salesman of the days of yore were saying, oh yeah, 200 times stronger than steel. So you'll wrap this in your graphene sheet and it's going to be unbreakable. And that's just patently false. So 200 times stronger than steel in theory, but we, we can't build that product. We can't manufacture that graphene just yet, um, just because of the, the source of these materials in our processes at this point. Um, I, I do want to track back to what you were talking about earlier, though, uh, about where the R&D is going um, around graphene. Like, what are some of the bleeding edge ideas that are starting to emerge? Uh, because with a, a material that can do, that has so many unique properties, it, it's the imagination is probably the limits of the material. You hit the nail right on the head right there. And within the book, the last couple of chapters, Les and I really go full tilt on imagining what it is that one could do with graphene. Um, but to answer the point about the graphene R&D, um, manufacturing is still a tremendous place with a lot of room for improvement on making graphene. Um, and so at the moment, we're only able to make graphene sheets 
a couple of microns to a couple of millimeters on a side. The sheets that we can make via epitaxy and um, vapor deposition are still very, very small. And so we've got to be able to crack the code on how to produce these pristine graphene sheets in areas that are useful to humans in normal products. And so I would basically say that once we crack the code to be able to produce graphene sheets an inch square, they, they might as well be miles and miles and miles wide because at that point it just becomes an engineering problem as to how, how well you control your, your manufacturing system. Um, so we've got, a, we've got a lot of work to do on that. There was a promising study that came out of MIT earlier this year where some uh, researchers used a roll-to-roll -roll chemical vapor deposition to make these large area sheets of graphene. Um, and I don't happen to remember how uh, pure their crystal lattice is, how well those hexagons ended up along one another. Um, but it definitely proved a very interesting and exciting proof of concept that the same basic technology for making your kitchen plastic wrap could be applied to make the graphene wrap of the future. And so when looking at the ability to produce these large area graphene sheets, my mind automatically went to space. I've been a space nerd basically forever. Who um, among us isn't a space nerd of some kind? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And so I have some proposals under review right now um, that I can't talk too, too much about, but it does have to do with using graphene in space. Um, so that's that's pretty exciting. And, um, and but... And that's purely because it's a stronger material and it's less, um, because of its thermal properties, it's less resistant to expanding and contracting? That's right. So I'm interested in it because it's very strong and it's very lightweight. Um, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a teaser. It has to do with laser sails. Okay. Laser sails. <laughs> I'm imagining something now. Uh, well, that's definitely... a a niche application that makes sense just because of how light graphene is. It's also, you don't need, you know, manufacture at scale for it to be viable for the space industry. You can be manufacturer in the middle realm, um, you know, uh, to build a, a few, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, laser sales uh, <laughs> uh, versus building an entire fleet. Uh, what are some of the other exciting potential, uh, uh, developments um, that are gonna that's gonna push graphene forward. Well, NASA is currently working on um, actually a couple of exciting uh, applications for it, and I would be remiss to mention my co-author Les Johnson, who actually works for NASA Marshall, where this study is being done, even though he's not on this particular project. But people are actually looking at taking carbon dioxide from astronauts' breath and using that as the carbon source to make graphene on the International Space Station. And hopefully when we start sending astronauts back to the moon and to the outer planets, we'll be able to recycle 
the breath of the astronaut and take the carbonaceous material and and use that in electronic applications in and around the science studies. So they'll be able to take these tiny little flecks and effectively 3D print their own little graphene-based circuits for whatever they happen to need uh, at the time. Wow, that's a that's a crazy application. And like, I mean, I can I can visualize it, um, but that's sort of amazing because right now, like CO two scrubbers just basically absorb the CO two, you know, in, into a into a catalyst of sorts. So it's not you you're losing a lot of that carbon that we're expending a lot of energy to create. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And you've got to deal with that as a solid waste, and then it starts to become a problem of, oh, are we just dumping it at the airlock or are we going to actually ship it back home? And, you know, it's just not a, a truly renewable resource, but to be able to, in effect, take food that one ships up from the earth, eat it, metabolize that into breath, you breathe it out, and then you're starting to uh, 3D print electronic circuits from your breath. I mean, that, that's a really exciting possibility to bring down the cost of operating in space on a uh, longer time scale than even just a couple of years. Any terrestrial options uh, that are really sort of pushing forward the edge of, of where we see graphene potentially used? Active camouflage is something that people are actually looking at. Um, a study just, just, just came out earlier this summer where some researchers, and it was actually a global effort, some people from Turkey, MIT in Massachusetts, and over at the University of Manchester in Great Britain all got together and they mixed a graphene-based material. It's actually graphite. They say in the paper that it's 130 layers of graphene, but at that point, it, it really is just graphite. And that's what I mean about putting graphene in an abstract title just to get some extra money. <laughs> but they mixed this graphite with a molten salt at room temperature. And when they were able to apply a charge to this graphene ionic liquid mixture, the ionic liquid seeped in between these uh, individual graphene sheets. And when they looked at this setup with an infrared camera, they were able to mask the thermal signature of a hot plate, a hand, and basically a coffee mug. And so this would be really interesting for creating active camouflage for things that need to avoid detection in the infrared area of the spectrum. And that's really exciting because, okay, great. If we can do this with infrared light, how long is it going to take us to be able to do this with visible light? And are we able to then incorporate it into body armor and all become master chief? Well, I was thinking like if we had active camouflage like this, we could get Wakanda then. Uh, so I, I'm pretty down with this. What's what's sort of amazing, I remember this study, 
is they only applied like a, a few volts. I think it was only like three volts across like a small area to get that kind of um, uh, camouflage, quote unquote, which is just an amazingly small amount of voltage to achieve the effect. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what a double A battery or something. I mean, it's it's nothing. Yeah. So this is not power intensive. So that uh, that's just remarkable. Um, where where do you see all of this going? I mean, because there's obviously money flowing into the R&D just because of the potential economic benefits. So we're going to see, you know, countries from across the world can continue to pour money into the research. But practically, what do you, where do you think we're going to see graphene go in the next few years? Well, there's no question that graphene is going to end up in electronic products. There's a lot of work being done already to incorporate graphene into next generation batteries and supercapacitors. So energy transmission is one thing, and, and that's an exciting area of its own. But then energy storage is also someplace that uh, graphene is going to see a good bit of exciting development. So if I take a step back a little bit and we go back sort of to the graphene fundamentals, graphene is a single atom layer thick, so it has no bulk. There are no atoms hiding behind one another. There's no shadowing, if you will. And graphene, therefore, has all surface area. It, it has no real depth to speak of, um, especially no depth that greatly affects its um, electronic properties. And that's where I'm leading to with this. So capacitors are electronic components that take two parallel plates that are separated by a non-insulating material. And the amount of capacitance that's able to be held up by a given capacitor has to do with the surface area of the parallel conductive sheets. So if you have graphene, which is a sheet, and it is conductive and can be set up parallel to itself, then it serves as a natural extension that graphene sheets, which are entirely of themselves all surface area and very light, you get capacitors that will be able to store a lot of charge in a very small amount of area that's also able to take on very different and uh, maybe unusual shapes because of its flexibility. So we could see supercapacitors for storing energy pop up in clothing and other kinds of areas where maybe somebody has a supercapacitor that's stored subcutaneously on their heart to run a pacemaker. So you no longer need a bulky battery that's surgically implanted, but instead you basically have what would amount to uh, very little more than your own natural skin that could be charged up remotely even. 
I'm just excited about the potential that I would never have to buy another lightning cable for my iPhone ever. <laughs> the um the book is called Graphene the Super Strong, Super Thin, Super Versatile Material that will revolutionize the world. Joseph Meaning, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, David Noel, Charles Bile, Clark Lingren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yuchi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of the show. Find us on Twitter and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Kishore Hari. Indre will be back next week. See you then. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.